Julie, what's on your wrist right now? Oh, okay. My left wrist, I have my Apple Watch um, that I want to set to no notifications, please, all the time after listening to our <laughs> our Gloria Mark podcast, but I'm not strong enough yet. And then on my right wrist, I have my whoop that I just got uh, in the last month that I know we're going to talk about, and then a hair tie. Yeah, I, I, I actually mirror you. I just don't have the hair tie. We're not alone. Uh, wearable health tracking technology, or as my wife told me to call it, fitness tracking, has grown immensely over the past decade plus. I mean, I just did some brief you know, Googling and ended up with a Yahoo stat, which I guess is interesting. But Yahoo Finance reports that the global consumer healthcare sensor market revenues reached $49.1 billion in 2022. And by the end of 2032, so a decade later, the worldwide market size is likely to reach a valuation of $94 billion. So I think these are on a lot of people's wrists, fingers, toes, whatever. Um, while sales are clearly good and we have clearly bought in, do we know if these things are actually helping us, right? I mean, isn't that the question we're trying to answer here? So I, I found a, a New York Times article from 2020, which I thought asked the perfect question. The question, it was an on-tech uh, article by Shira Ovidi. I apologize if I pronounced your name wrong. Uh, that asked, will more data make us healthier? And I think that's really the question we ask because the sensors and everything are getting so good. We're getting so much more information, but I just don't know if it's doing anything. So today... We have an expert in performance science, wearable technology, and all things being active here to tell us about how accurate this data is, what data we should care about, and probably most importantly, how we interpret it and use it and make us healthier. What do you think, Julie? I think that sounds great. I would like you to create a graph and, and uh, show me how, you know, the, my data points, and then I'll agree with you. Yeah, we're all about graphs and Excel sheets here. Welcome to your doctor friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend. My name's Julie Bruni. And I'm Jeremy Allen. And we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions and we want to help. We want to be your doctor friends. All right. Welcome to your doctor friends CES edition. We're going to take the Miss Frizzle-like adventure into the technology that is on many of our wrists and hands with the plans to leave here understanding how we can use these tools and make us healthier. I have to reference Miss Frizzle because if anybody sees our reels, you see my background and it looks like a kid vomited toys behind me. So I figure there has to be a Miss a Miss Frizzle-like adventure. Um, we have an amazing guest today. We have Kristen Holmes. She's the Vice President of Performance Science at Whoop. I'm going to go through Kristen's amazing bio here. She has an MIT Sloan Artificial Intelligence Certificate. She has a master's in psychology and sports performance, as well as a, she's a current PhD candidate in psychology. She works with hundreds of the best tactical, professional, surgical teams, corporate and NCAA athletes in the world, helping them interpret both WHOOP data, but also other data to try to optimize training, recovery, and sleep behavior. I thought this was super cool. Her research focuses on the temporal organization of circadian influences and their effect on physiologic and psychological resilience. I think that's super awesome. Also hard to say 10 times fast, but really, really cool. Um, Kristen herself was a very accomplished athlete, so let's uh, um, make her blush a little bit here. She was a three-times All-American, two-times Big Ten athlete of the year at the University of Iowa, competing in both field hockey and basketball. I would assume at the time of this taping, um, she also probably was pretty into what Caitlin Clark did last night, who had a triple-double with 41 points for her team to go to the Final Four. So all hail University of Iowa female basketball, um, which was awesome. 
She also went on to be one of the most successful field hockey coaches in Ivy League history. She won 12 league titles in 13 seasons and a national championship at Princeton, who also had a pretty good March Madness run. So maybe it's you, Kristen. Welcome to the show. Gosh, thanks for having me. <laughs> we we always read these bios and Julie and I always get a little self-conscious afterward because everybody we have on is so accomplished, but it's so fun. It's so fun. We get to learn. Now you get to be part of our education. So let's let's just start really, really simple here. Let's start with the hardware itself before we get into all of the fun analyticals and everything like that. We're all familiar with wearables. As Julie mentioned in the open, she has Apple on her left and Whoop on her right. And some people's got Fitbit and everybody's got all these other types of uh, stuff all over them. So what are the basic concepts behind this technology? Like, how does this work? Yeah, it's uh, it's a little different than I think a Fitbit and Apple Watch in that there is no watch face. Uh, it is it's just a band, uh, and it is collecting huge amounts of data, uh, and it's built to be worn twenty four seven. In fact, you don't even have to take off the uh, the Whoop device to charge it. You there's a little battery pack that you can charge independently, and then you slide it over top of the whoop strap to to charge it so um, you literally have the opportunity to collect data 24 7. Um, we know that the more data that you collect the more accurate it's going to be so you know that was the impetus behind figuring out a way to uh, charge it without actually having to take it off your wrist so it's really built to be worn 24 7 and you know our sampling rate is the best on the market um, we're at i think 54 hertz so because we're not sending notifications and you know receiving phone calls and, and things like that, uh, we can devote all of our, our resources toward um, our sampling rate. Uh, and um, it's, you know, 100 times a second. So it's it's incredibly robust. You know, I think most um, devices on, on the market are, you know, maybe capturing a heart rate um, data point, you know, every seven sec- seconds, 10 seconds, you know, there might be a three minute break where they have to shut down in order to kind of send a message. Uh, we don't do any of that. Um, we're constantly collecting data. As a result, uh, the heart rate data with which we're building our features on top of is is really accurate, right? And I think that's that's the most important piece here is, you know, is the the underlying data accurate enough to be able to give you the insights about your body, accurate insights about your body that you can then um, go and action. Yeah, that's awesome. Let's let's break that down for a second. I I have appreciated since putting on my Whoop that it hasn't told me to read an email, so I do appreciate that. Um, so when when I take this thing off, or even when I take off my Apple Watch, there's like this green thing that shines at me. So tell me what that is. Like, how is that getting? Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, these are these are sensors. So it's a PBG, um, which you know most um, I think all wearable technologies are are using, um, which is basically just kind of refracting. It's uh, I, I would just. You do need to give a shout out to our our um, our signal processing team because they're the ones who process these data and uh, and transform them so we can um, build build algorithms and um, and give you insight about your body. So, but yeah, it's just PPG sensing technology. Um, so it's looking at the the blood flow and um, refracting that back, and then being able to basically um, tell you exactly what your your heart is doing, um, and then again be able to synthesize those data to give you insights about your load, your cardiovascular load, your recovery, and your sleep. And you mentioned you ha- you guys get data 24-7, so you've been able to kind of look through and make sure you're accurate. So like, how do you guys judge whether you're accurate? So what are you comparing it to? Yeah. So, I mean, we do obviously tons of internal validation. Um, so, but Whoop saying Whoop is great um, is not, um, folks externally don't necessarily love that. We want other people saying Whoop is great. And there was actually a study that was commissioned by the Australia Institute of Sport, which is one of the premier kind of uh, 
uh, institutions for for sport in the world. Um, they are working with the um, Australia Olympic Pipeline, and they have a very very robust um, exercise physiology and, and kind of physiology lab. And anyway, they were they wanted to pick a horse, you know, a wearable horse for their the next two Olympics. So they commissioned a study, and um, they looked at. Uh, five products. So it was Aura, Polar, Somfit, Garmin, and Apple Watch. They did a validation um, study and a reliability study. And Whoop outperformed all of these products in heart rate and heart rate variability. Um, we had, you know, by far the smallest absolute bias in both heart rate and heart rate variability uh, with near perfect interclass correlations of um, 0.99 for both of those metrics. So both HRV and heart rate variability. Uh, the next best performing wearable was Polar with an interclass correlation of 0.93 for heart rate um, and 0.65 for heart rate variability. Ours was 0.99 for both metrics. So I don't mention any of the other metrics or the other products because they were um, really bad. <laughs> so this is, I think, what is amazing about this study. Again, it was published in 2020, September of 2022. Um, so just last fall. Um, what was great about the study is this was a totally independent independently run study. There's excellent numbers uh, in this study. Um, and they looked at all of these devices, same sort of conditions, um, and Whoop really outperformed all of them by a large, large margin. So I think when I go back to, you know, you've got all of these products are giving you readiness scores or recovery scores. They're, you know, staging your sleep and telling you how much time you're spending in bed. They're, you know, looking at your, you know, your training load and, you know, and then maybe even coaching you on on kind of how much volume and intensity. If your underlying data is not accurate, all that is is noise, right? So um, I think that's where we really differentiate ourselves is that um, we are able to uh, to we have our underlying data is is exceptional, and as a result, we can build features that you can trust. That's great. I would like to get more granular and just sort of springboarding off of the heart rate variability. Uh, data point that you talked about, which seems to be like the kind of apex of a lot of this. And the one that I did not understand at all until I looked it up and after I had my own whoop, um, my own whoop wearable myself. Because um, when I looked up, I was like, I don't even know what heart rate variability is, which is sort of embarrassing to um, mention as a sports medicine physician. So yeah. I found the record now. So that's fun. Um, but when I looked it up, I was looking at like, know what seems to be reputable websites like Mayo Clinic and Harvard and they were like yeah this is what heart rate variability generally means and Chris and I'll kind of let you educate us on um, on the specifics but basically after that they were like and most devices are really shitty at telling you what it is if you're wearing a device so expound on that for me if you if you will yeah well you know as I just kind of rattled off our you know results from that test um, but I, I think what was really what was great about um, the the second study that the AIS did was um, the reliability study. So that's basically how feasible is this device in the real world, you know, in terms of giving us information that is useful, right, that we can, we can action. And the reliability study was done on water polo players. And if you guys have ever seen a water, a water polo match, you'll know that it's utterly brutal in terms of like the requirements and like they're eyeing at each other and it's you have to say water and um and our you know the whoop device performed beautifully again you know it was the the best and what they i think found in that study that i think is really important and germane to the this conversation here is that it it was useful the data was useful for the practitioners to action so you know the hurry variability and i can go into the kind of the details in terms of um how we're calculating and, and measuring heart rate variability 
but but essentially it's just a snapshot of how recovered you are right and it's and and there's uh, a lot of science behind heart rate variability being a very good indicator of how you're adapting to external stress so you know not just training load but just life load you know if you have a, if you undergo a lot of psychological stress that will manifest in your autonomic nervous system your heart rate variability it's a function of the heart but it manifests in the autonomic nervous system right so when your autonomic nervous system is not you know is under recovered not functioning probably you're going to have a lower heart rate variability when your autonomic nervous system is robust and functioning really well you're going to have a higher heart rate variability and that is basically just the time interval between beats that's the heart rate variability so this reliability study you know found that the practitioners could action heart rate variability they could modulate volume and intensity of their athletes using this data point um, to to success so I, I think again when we consider a lot of these data um, we need to understand okay is it actually is it accurate enough to be useful in the real world and I think heart rate variability um, and I and I can appreciate certainly you know doctors are like I don't understand the standards it's not FDA approved but I think when we think about the overall utility um, I think there's there's a lot of evidence that it's that's very useful and and we see our whoop recovery uh, metric, which is basically it's pulling in heart rate variability that is weighted the heaviest because that is um, physiologically, uh, it, it's kind of, a, again, your sleep and HRB are not going to correlate linearly, right? There's going to be, um, you can sleep mar- not very well, but actually have a higher, high HRB. And there's a, because there's a lot of, it's a very nonspecific metric and there's a lot of things that influence it. So you can be underslept a bit, but you know what? You ate really well. You hydrated really well. Um, you fell asleep at a, at a similar time as you did the previous night, but maybe you woke up a little earlier. Your sleep was a little bit shorter. You know, you can still be ready to to perform. And, and HRV is, a, is again, a, a marker of like how ready you are to perform. So um, so the whoop recovery score is going to take in heart rate variability. It's going to take in your resting heart rate. Both of these are measured when there are minimal, um, you know, confounding kind of environmental Condition. So we're, we're measuring this during sleep, right? So basically when you are unconscious, because just by thinking something can change my heart rate variability. Thinking about something mm-hmm. can change my heart rate variability. So we're taking um, heart rate variability, resting heart rate during sleep. And then we also look at your respiratory rate. Um, so that's a component of our recovery score. And then your sleep performance. And our algorithm kind of mushes all of these together and gives you a recovery score on a scale of zero to 100. And kind of back to the reliability piece, what we've seen in our studies is we see whoop recovery actually correlate to exit bat velocity, exit, exit ball velocity, um, free throw percentage, pool time, swim times. So when you think about it, you know, it is this a useful metric to help me understand, um, you know, how I need to think about my day? It absolutely is uh, because we see it correlate with all these things that uh, all these performance variables that, you know, frankly, we care about. That's really good, Kristen. I've always I, I tell actually a ton of patients throughout the day that I've never met an undertrained athlete, only an under recovered athlete. So what you just said mm-hmm. there kind of like really hammers home on that. You saw performance increase as people improve their recovery, not necessarily more lifting and things like that, which I thought is is, is a very interesting yeah. observation. Yeah. And we know the physiology, obviously, behind that right now. It's in in this concept of load management is becoming um, not you know not just relevant for athletes, but just us, right? Like we're not competing necessarily any anymore, and there's less consequence to 
if we are competing there, you know, the consequences aren't as great as maybe we were, you know, training when we were training for the Olympics or, or in college or whatever. But, um, but, but, but that said, you know, we're, we're trying to, um, you know, be as, as healthy as possible. And, and there is this, um, I think really important, uh, principle that we all have to think about if we're interested in, in, you know, kind of quality of life is, is this, you know, um, ensuring that we're we're thinking about our rest and recovery and, and our, our rest and our stress in a very intentional way. Uh, and that's, I think, this recovery metric really helps us think about how we're stressing our body and we are we doing it in a smart way. Um, when we're not adapting functionally, personally, I want to know. You know, if I'm not ad- adapting functionally to the, the training, the volume and intensity I'm putting in my body or in just life load in general, you know, I kind of want to know that. And, and a trending decline in my recovery data is an indication that I'm not adapting functionally. So I need to just, you know, sit back for a second and think about, okay, what about my lifestyle right now is not upgrading my my my, my capacity, right? And um, and there are very clear inputs. Uh, you know, again, when we talk about this industry is, you know, being really noisy. We get a lot of, I think, conflicting information in terms of how to apply our effort uh, to in- ensure that we're, you know, we're our our health trajectory is trending in a positive direction. That means an increasing heart rate variability, a decreasing resting heart rate. Um, you know, these are things that we can measure now. Um, but I think understanding how to apply our effort is um, is the next kind of step in, in the puzzle. And a big piece of that is is managing rest and, and, and stress in appropriate ways. It seems to have analogs, Julie. It reminds me of um, um, functional medicine physicians where where people are going and getting basically a thousand labs drawn on them the first time they see somebody and it's like what do you do with all that information like great you have access to all these tests but like what what's the purpose and so what Kristen just said there I thought was great because she's like yeah you can go put a million things on you and get all this information and obviously you probably want to look at the studies and say I'm getting accurate information but even if you get all of it like what are you doing with it yeah and, data, and- data isn't helpful if you can't interpret it Right. And and different than like a functional medicine physician who is putting out a lot of data points that are maybe more correlative to like general health. I feel like as MDDO, you know, type physicians that went to, you know, regular allopathic or osteopathic medical school, when we like see somebody for a physical and we do a bunch of labs, we're basically trying to rule out signs of disease. Like that's what you get from that data. It's like, well, you seem to be okay and the rest of it's up to you. Bye bye. <laughs> this is actually a wonderful day. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, okay, you don't have lupus. Yeah. Cool. Now uh, work out a little bit. See you later. You know, this is so well, helpful. We, we see that a lot, right? People wanting to come in and be like, well, I just want to be healthier. And you're like, yes. well, you know, MDDOs aren't necessarily trained all that well in this, which is why we bring on people to educate us and yes. make us better at it. Um, we, you, Krista did mention before the show started that my background gave her a decreased heart rate variability. Um, she, was, <laughs> she, was, she was feeling worse about that. Um, the, the, I, we did a great job, um, getting granular there, Chris, I thought that was really helpful information. So let's just on a, a example, hypothetical situation, somebody has either a whoop on or something that has very good, accurate data. They're getting information and their recovery score or their heart rate variability is not ideal. What are some things that you would recommend to that person to focus on? Yeah. So as I said, you know, heart rate variability is, um, is a great biomarker to help you understand, you know, how your health is trending. Um, again, a lower heart rate variability is a sign that, you know, you're not as adapting as functionally to your environment as you as you could be. And this is, again, relative to your own baseline. And an increasing heart rate variability is a, is a sign that you're adapting uh, well to your environment. And it is very, very normal for your heart rate variability values to change day to day. That's normal. You just don't want that fluctuation of change to be 
super acute. Like you want um, the kind of day-to-day variation of heart rate variability to be minimal. Um, so not these huge egregious changes in, in kind of high and then low and high and low. Um, that is generally a sign that you're not adapting um, super functionally to, to stress. But if you want to mediate your heart rate variability, so things that will improve, and a lot of these things are not going to come to a surprise, as a surprise, but, um, but we see this very, very clearly in the WHOOP data. Alcohol will absolutely crush your heart rate variability. And again, when you when kind of step back and think about what is heart rate variability, so your your autonomic nervous system is sending signals to your heart, to and it's going to tell your heart to go up, to increase. It's going to tell your heart rate to go down. When you are under recovered or your heart rate variability is suppressed, your heart is not going to receive the signals from the autonomic nervous system in a in a, in, a, in an optimal way. So just imagine having to respond and react to your environment when a, you have a really low heart rate variability. You're just going to do that as effectively. And everyone has probably had this. A lot of folks have had this experience who have drink, drank alcohol, right? You wake up the next day and you're just a zombie, right? And your your body can't respond to the autonomic nervous system. So that's going to be reflected in your heart rate variability as a lower heart rate variability. So alcohol is crushing. Dehydration is also crushing. Um, that will really minimize your heart rate variability. And anyone who's been dehydrated kind of feels lethargic and is not able to respond and adapt their environment. So I think that that's a really obvious example. Um, eating uh, food close to bedtime is another way to really crush your heart rate variability. There's a circadian component to, um, you know, to kind of eating. You, you essentially want to, um, and, and apologize, I can really go down a circadian um, rabbit hole. Um, but but um, the reason why I'm studying is because there's, you know, very, very clear um, uh, implications when we're doing activities outside of our circadian, active circadian phase. So our active circadian phase is basically is during the day. So when the sun is up, our inactive phase is once the sun goes down. So when we're eating out during the inactive phase of our circadian rhythm, that is once the sun goes down, um, it is very, very stressful for our system. Okay, so we release um, that we activate the sympathetic branch of our autonomic nervous system. Okay, I interpret our autonomic nervous system has two branches, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. When we eat outside, um, once the sun goes down in our inactive phase, we activate the sympathetic branch. It's very stressful. Our system has to do a lot of things or the, that it doesn't want to do. As a result, this really stresses our system, and this is going to le- yield a lower heart rate variability. So alcohol, hydration, eating close to bedtime. Generally speaking, like I said, you want to basically two to three hours prior to when you intend to sleep, you want to have your last calorie. Um, so that's really important. Um and then I would say managing stress throughout the day. Um, you know, we kind of talked about stress and rest. Um, you know, identifying stress is a skill. Um, and the, and how you want to think about that skill is, is when you identify that there's been stress, and it could be good stress, bad stress. Generally speaking, your, your body is going to kind of process it the same. Um, so all stress requires um, a requisite amount of rest. And you can do that in the form of an intentional breath work, a slow, a slow paced breathing, for example, would be really great, you know, to map with um, with a moment of stress. Um, and, and that basically what that does is deactivate your nervous system. OK, so that um, that activates the parasympathetic branch of the nervous system. So the deactivating branch of the nervous system, it calms your nervous system and you want to calm your nervous system. 
you know, periodically throughout the day so you don't accumulate negative stress. Because negative stress accumulation will decrease your heart rate variability in that it, it generally leads to a more fragmented sleep experience. And that's the other way to really crush your heart rate variability is to not get enough sleep. So there's a circadian component um, in that you want to try to stabilize when you go to bed and when you wake up. Okay. Really, really important for heart rate variability and for general health, mental, physical, emotional health. Limiting night-to-night -night variability is probably the most important thing you can do for your health. The, the more night-to-night -night variability you have, um, you will see your heart rate, you know, variability decline, um, you know, over over time for sure. So that, that's a big one. Um, and then, uh, and again, you know, the, a lot of the night-to-night -night variability is really what um, impacts how uh, your ability to be in these deeper stages of sleep. So that really drives your um, sleep efficiency or sleep quality, okay, the night-to-night -night variability. Um, and then, you know, and then getting enough sleep, right? If you're constantly getting short sleep, that is going to also impact your autonomic nervous system in, in a profound way. So I listed off, you know, probably six or seven things. Um, so I know, and I know that's a lot, but those are kind of the, the top things um, that influence heart rate variability based on my research and a lot of the research that my team has done and um, as well as external literature. You listed off six or seven things, but I think it only took like, I, I wasn't actually timing it, but it couldn't <laughs> have been more than f five minutes. And I'm thinking yeah. to myself, like, these are the five minutes that physicians need to be spending with their patients, giving them tangible things that can actually make them healthier versus just being yeah. like, you need to recover better. I just think that that was so well said and easy to understand. I yeah. agree, Jeremy. Yeah. I mean, this is what really frustrates me is that there is a taxonomy, right, of, of behaviors that are going to absolutely impact the trajectory of your health and your overall well-being. And no one ever is really talking about any of these things in a consistent kind of standardized manner um, in, in healthcare. And um, it is, it's such a shame because most of the things that I listed off are frankly, are democratically available. It doesn't for the most part, you know? Um, and you know what, if I, if you're a new parent or a shift worker, well, there are, you know, there are levers you can pull to offset the impact of a dysregulated sleep experience, right? There, but again, no one is talking about that. Um, and there's plenty of evidence in literature to guide us through what are these behaviors? What are these levers to kind of offset you know, a, a imperfect schedule or, or, you know, work constraints or, you know, you're, you're giving, you know, you're caregiving, uh, you're, you know, taking care of a, an elderly parent. Like, I mean, there's a lot of moments in our life that we can't control necessarily that impact our sleep. Um, but there are other levers that you can pull to offset. And again, I just don't think it's widely available, which is a shame. I agree. Yeah. And I think this kind of harkens back, Jeremy, to the, am I burned out? And how do I know if I'm burned out episode that we had with Dr. Sapna Shahak? Which was, we talked about like, okay, here's the symptoms of burnout of like, all right, I'm irritable. I, you know, my mood is not great. I'm tired all the time. You know, and Dr. Shahak was even saying like, take an internal inventory of how you're doing and even just like your, your perceived physical health of like, do you just feel sick and tired? And what a wonderful way to have a tool, especially for an overthinker and a worrier like myself, i.e., you know, read hypochondriac of to get, have some really objective data to say, yeah, Julie, no, you're not crazy. Your numbers look like shit. And, and maybe you should check on either, you know, something going on in your physical health or maybe, you know, divert some more of your energy into focusing on restorative behaviors like, you know, maintaining a consistent bedtime or like doing more yoga with Dushan or like doing some breathing exercises like Rose taught us, you know. So 
I think this is a really nice cap, Jeremy, on, uh, you know, our our uh, our series on resolutions that we did in, at the beginning of the year to say like, all right, well, if you're looking for cues, sort of like, you know, um, cues for burnout or cues for, hey, my body is not is telling me right now that I am not uh, adapting to my environment. Here you go. There it is. Here's some data for you. So I just think that's so rad. I mean, burnout is is absolutely the result of insufficient capacity to handle the weight of stress. Yeah. So stress isn't going anywhere. We need to, you know, improve our tolerance for stress, you know, and, and those things that I listed off are going to help you improve your tolerance. I mean, the other thing is when someone doesn't have resources, um, you know, and, and I, I don't want to be naive, you know, not everyone can afford a whoop, right, and are going to get those data. But if we can help people, hey, there are, you know, four democratically available uh, behaviors that you can uh, enact daily that will increase your tolerance for stress, allow you to think a little bit more clearly about your life, allow you to live your values with a bit more intention and, um, you know, uh, allow you the, the the kind of the capacity to think more clearly about your purpose. I mean, that's really what I think a lot of these behaviors enable is they just increase your bandwidth to really you know, live your live your life in a way that, um, you know, with, with quality. You took the words out of my mouth. Like you work for Whoop, the company, and clearly you guys are trying to figure out ways to take this information and measure it and give it back to people. But everything you just said there didn't require a Whoop to do it, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was just was really powerful in terms of these are the take home points. I just think that they're, those are really, really powerful things for people um, to think about. Um, one of the other areas you spend a lot of time in terms of like sleep. I think people tend to often wonder like I'm asleep and I've, I've had my whoop on now for like a few weeks and I frequently get the message that says you can overcome your poor sleep by doing these other things. And my, my scores aren't terrible. Like my sleep efficiency and stuff like that is all fine. But like, I just, I'm always told I'm getting poor sleep. So what do you tell people to, to do to kind of improve their sleep? Yeah, I mean, it definitely starts. You can't fix sleep without fixing your circadian rhythms. Um, and uh, and I think, and I think we often, um, you know, give bad advice, frankly, and tell people, "Hey, spend more time in bed." But you know, spending more time in bed and looking at the ceiling isn't isn't gonna isn't gonna help either. So, oftentimes, if our if our kind of these circadian behaviors are um, are are not aligned with the natural light dark cycle, uh, 24-hour natural light dark cycle. Uh, we we really struggle with sleep. So one of the if you want to fix sleep, um, you want to make sure that within 20 minutes of waking up, you're exposing yourself to as much bright light as humanly possible. Um, if you're waking up before the sun, you know, goes out, it comes up. You want to make sure that you're really pounding yourself with artificial light that basically tells your system that it's time to be awake. Um, now, so ideally within 20 minutes of waking up, you're getting outside and getting natural light exposure. So you want about 100,000 lux of photon energy within 20 minutes of waking up. Um, so that means five to 10 minutes outdoors um, is really like the the optimal protocol. And that basically kind of sets your circadian system. So the most important uh, behavior without a doubt is getting uh, lots of light within 20 minutes of waking up, regardless of when you wake up. Just know that that is going to influence when you feel sleepy at night. So the earlier you view sunlight, the earlier you're going to fall, feel sleepy. 
And it's really important to kind of get that schedule as dialed in as possible because you want to go to bed and wake up at consistent times. And that is influenced by when you see light in the morning. So understanding that relationship is kind of the core to getting um, a beautiful consolidated sleep experience. Again, because that that consistent sleep-wake time is really what's going to drive the quality of your sleep, right? So we want to spend, you know, plenty of time in these deeper stages of sleep. You know, REM, so sleep is is how we measured on the Whoop platform. Um, and you, you know, you want to spend about you know thirty-five to forty-five percent of your total sleep time in these deeper, roughly in these deeper stages of sleep. Um, you know, to ensure that you're kind of waking up and you feel you know, fully rested and ready to go in the morning. You know, generally speaking, adults shouldn't feel sleepy during the day. You're going to have, uh, you know, a point after lunch, you know, the the, the siesta time frame. You're going to have a dip in your energy levels. Um, you know, they have a, which is, you know, follows a very, you know, kind of prominent known kind of circadian rhythm. Um, but But you shouldn't necessarily need to sleep per se. And that's a good indication. If you're feeling really sleepy, during the day and that you feel like you have to take a nap, I would probably say that you're, you're not getting enough biological sleep. And that's kind of the second, you know, nighttime biological sleep. That's the second kind of piece of the puzzle is making sure that it's you're spending sufficient amount of time in bed. So there's the, the night to night variability, reducing that or, you know, basically making sure that your your sleep wake time is consistent as possible. And that's influenced by when you see light in the morning. That's going to influence when you release the melatonin, which is um, kind of that sleepy molecule, but also has neuroprotective effects and, you know, reduces cancer proneness. Like you you want to have a strong, you want to produce um, melatonin. And when people bypass their, you know, pressure for sleep and, um, you know, basically experience kind of this weakened melatonin over time, um, that has a, a very strong relationship with, um, you know, metabolic dysfunction, um, insulin, resistance, um, you know, infertility, uh, it has a whole host of downstream effects. So you really want to try to make sure that, um, you know, you're producing melatonin, it's strong. And and when you feel sleepy, you want to go to sleep. And and again, you know, you do that over and over again, and, and that really will improve your sleep experience, um, you know, at, at night in terms of getting quality, quality sleep. So you're telling me that the people who wake up at 6.30 in the morning, Monday through Friday, and then say, I'm going to catch up by waking up at 9 a.m. on Saturday are not doing themselves a service. No, they, they really aren't. Um, you know, that weekend variability where you're, you're trying to make up for lost sleep, like you can't make up for lost biological sleep. Like that's like that's not um, that you can't do that. So, um, yeah. So you really want to try to, again, you know, minimize that variability. Um, but you do need to spend enough time in bed. So, how how you think about it because usually if you're always waking up at 6 30 for the most part you're going to wake up probably around 6 30 on the weekend too right most of us have had that experience right you kind of get that pressure to wake up well the 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 perfect protocol would be to wake up at 6 30 and then you know take a nap around 11 to 12 so basically seven hours after you wake up is when you're going to feel a little sleepy you're going to have that natural dip you know, get an hour nap, a 90 minute nap. When you're not getting enough sleep at night, when your sleep is short, you're going to feel sleepier in the day. You're going to feel less alert. 
um, and you're not going to function as you know cognitively as well. So these mini kind of naps can definitely help. But just make sure that you don't nap. Your napping isn't getting in the way of your ability to fall asleep when you want to fall asleep, and and you know your ability to kind of get the the nights the full night's sleep that that you could potentially achieve. Um, so I think you know napping can be really good for people who can't get enough time um, in bed. But um, but we want to try to obviously consolidate our sleep during the night when possible. Yeah. And we can, um, you know, go into these things even further. And we're going to have an upcoming episode pretty soon about all things sleep. So I guarantee oh, nice. that our guest will will back up those those hypotheses. Cause they're, for sure. For sure. Can it's as hypothesis at this point. <clears throat> it's yeah. so tangible too, Kristen. I just really appreciate your your input on this stuff, because I think, again, as you're doing your own PhD work, I'm sure that I mean, we could talk sleep forever, right? But yes. like for the listener who's just trying to say like, I would love to listen to sleep for an hour, but realistically in the next like three minutes, tell me what I can do to feel better. I think that that's just really, really helpful information. Totally. Um, and, and maybe counterintuitive to like what people think, even though this is not, I, the stuff on variability and stuff is well publicized at this point. It's still just not, it's just not intuitive. It's, it's a hard behavior though. You know, I mean, modernity is not set up in a way to facilitate um, minimizing, you know, sleep-wake variability. Like, it, you know, we have access to light. We have access to food. We have access, you know, to 24-7, right? So, um, you know, I think it's 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 tough. You know, there's the social commitments. You know, people have, you know, are booking dinners at 8.30 and 9 p.m. And um, so, yeah, it can, be, it can be really tough. But I will say that it is the behavior that will have the biggest out like an outsized effect on your health yeah the biggest Uh, return on investment yeah oh my gosh the biggest return on investment like it is just like you're it it like once you minimize dynamic variability you're you know ghrelin your hormones next day your ghrelin your leptin are going to be working as they should like your body is wanting to um anticipate sleep it's wanting to anticipate your meal um, anticipate your activity, anticipate when you're winding down. Like it's, it's, it's the clocks in your body are set up to anticipate those environmental cues. And when you are going outside of those endogenous preferences, your health suffers. Like that is, you know, you will be setting yourself up for neurogenic disease. You're setting yourself up for cancer. You're, you know, it's just, it is just the reality of the situation. So if there's one behavior that will have a an impact on all sorts of other behaviors. It is the night to night variability, minimizing that. Let's jump into the third category, the one that uh, maybe people spend all their time focusing on, which is the strain category. Yeah. The one where Julie did a yoga on Saturday and got zero point zero strain and wants to know why. I know why. Because I did <laughs> hard. Well, I did awesome yoga. I did yoga with Deshaun, and it was very restorative. I mean, there were some poses that got my heart rate up a little bit, but for the most part, like I know. I know what I'm putting into it. I am not a Gatorade commercial. I don't sweat out blue stuff. I want to walk around my neighborhood and want to do some yoga. And, and maybe I should be more of a Gatorade commercial, but I don't care. But I did. I did text Jeremy and I was like, what the hell? I got 0.0 from my, from my yoga and you showed me yours. And you're like, I did sweat man yoga and I got a 4.1. And I was like, my competitive ass couldn't, couldn't accept yeah. that. But it was because really I was doing a restorative uh activity and and i love that and i'm you know what i think i win see you see what you've done here Kristen. you've you've pitted us against us i know unfortunately yeah you're dr frenemies yeah 
so funny. Yeah. Well, it, um, yeah. So we the strain ask person a question there. We just, I just yelled. Sorry. I know. I know. There's plenty to react to though. And I'm happy to, uh, just, just leave it away. Please, please do. Yeah. So, you know, we talked about recovery. Um, we talked about sleep. Um, gosh, but you're right. We, you know, so sleep consistency is the metric that you want to focus on. Um, if, if you're on the Woo platform, it'll give you and, and just, you know, don't stress out too much, but, you know, on the weekly performance assessment that you get every Sunday, it will basically, you just kind of swipe up on your WPA and you'll see your night-to-night variability. And you just want to kind of keep that, I would say, to start below an hour. And if you can just kind of improve over time, that's that's the key. Sleep debt is the other metric that I think is really useful metric to pay attention to on the Woot platform. And for anyone, like you just don't want to accumulate massive amounts of sleep debt um, that correlates to illness injury, illness and injury burden. Um, so we definitely see that in our athletes on the platform. Those individuals who accumulate a lot of sleep debt, you know, more than an hour are, are more predisposed to injury and illness. Um, we also see sleep debt correlate with next day executive function measured by Stroop and MBAC. So you literally, the more sleep debt you have, um, the, the stupider you get. Um, and sorry to say that so harshly, but that's just the reality. Um, <clears throat> And then, um, and then, and then strain. And strain is basically a summary statistic of your cardiovascular load. So the yoga session that you did, Julie, is just not cardiovascularly super taxing, but it has incredible restorative benefits, right? We talk about, you know, mapping your stress with your rest. I mean, you're you're getting mobility, you're getting stability. I mean, all of the. I think that's a core pillar of longevity and and so critical. Um, you know where. I'm going to challenge you a little bit, Julie, is you do want to spend time in zone five, which probably requires some sweating and and some time in, in zone two. Um, but again, if we're, if we're talking purely about longevity, those are really, um, you know, those are a super core, you know, to, you know, increasing your quality of life over time, making sure that you're spending time in those zones, those heart rate zones, um, but the restorative stuff. So, and then you know, lifting heavy weights. We have um, an MSK score, a musculoskeletal score coming out, which is going to basically give you more credit for your um, hard weightlifting session. And, and basically what we've done is we've been able to take a technology called PUSH. We acquired them about a year and a half ago, and we took all of their algorithms and put them on 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 our little wrist-based device here. And we basically can tell the velocity of what you're doing. We can classify um, what type of workouts you're doing, um, and really give you a a score for you know how effortful that weightlifting session was, um, so we can then feed that intelligence into um, uh, or help you understand um, how you need to recover from that session a little bit better. I think because we're you know basically it's just all cardiovascular. It was in the past we didn't have this neural this neuromuscular kind of component. Um, you know our recovery sometimes would be a little bit more inflated. Or, or you wouldn't get credit, I guess, for your weightlifting session in a way that was, you know, that made members feel like, you know, hey, I just busted my ass and right. in this weightlifting session and I only got a strain of four. And then I went for a two mile jog and got a strain of 13. It was just like a really weird user experience for a lot of folks. So anyway, we saw that with the MSK, uh, which is coming out soon. So we're super pumped about that. Um, but yeah, I mean, this understanding, I think, what load you're putting on your body and and how that might impact how you need to recover, I think is obviously a really cool source of insight. No, I agree. And I that, that 
that is really helpful feedback for me because I know in my heart of hearts I need to go out and run a little bit. I know, I know. (laughs) I also like to give myself credit for shit that I'm doing around the house that requires me, that gets my heart rate up. Like, I don't know what to call it on my Apple Watch. I just call it like functional strength training, which it kind of isn't, but it's like I'm vacuuming, I'm doing the laundry, I'm I'm dusting up really high, I'm squatting down low, I'm doing all this stuff. Like, I should get credit for that. So I make sure that I do. And I love, I love that you're that you're giving us a peek into the future about this this MSK weight training stuff. Um, I think there's a lot of people that would really appeal to. Clearly, that's why you guys Built care it, about yeah. it and want it. Yeah, want yeah. to have it built into to your device. I mean, yep. I know one person who will very care about it. That's my husband Adam, who is uh, an insane. Uh, I guess not insane. He's actually quite calculated in it, but weightlifter. And I think that that nice. a- appeal to a really large community. And I think it even. Yep harkens back to our episode with Arash from Prehab talking about, hey, there's so many ways that people like to, and now harkening back to um, Reagan Chastain, engage in, in, in uh, what does she call it, enjoyable movement or pleasurable movement. Yeah. And that's different for everybody, but we know that that's, that's something that's so incredibly important for every single body is that we need to, to maintain health and reduce risk regardless of someone's weight, regardless of anything. It's pleasurable movement needs to be a part of your life. And how do we make that palatable to people? And how do we give them credit for it? Because as I just showed you, between at least me and Jeremy, everything is a competition. What? I love it. It's a competition with yourself. And and, And, and the winner is you. And Julie, we did did classify your yoga, right? Did we detect it as an activity and classify it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's, I think that's another really cool feature that's a good realize. We're able to classify, I mean, over a hundred different activities from we know if you're playing badminton versus tennis versus squash versus pickleball. I mean, holy cow. Right. And so we automatically detect that activity and we classify it um, and and give you insight about what happened over the course of, of that session. You know, how much time did you spend in these different heart rate zones? Mm -hmm. You know, and I think for people who are really starting to dial in now to heart rate zone training, understanding that, all right, if if I really want to improve my my cardiometabolic health over over time, you know, spending the right amount of time in these zones is is actually is is actually important and something I should be thinking about or or have some insight into and um and that's really what we've tried to build. From a medical perspective, we spend a lot of times trying to convince people who are addicted to cardio to do some strength training <laughs> and from people who are addicted to strength training to do some cardio or exactly. to do things like yoga. So I think that your evolution and how you're measuring is going to only help even with the things that we see in the medical office because people tend to get addicted to one one thing and then only do that one thing which leads to the overuse injuries that we see yeah exactly yeah you really want to diversify your training and and it's and it's hard i mean i think it hey if if you're if it's not doing anything and it's better to do something of course but yeah i mean it's getting people i mean there it is so important to lift weights like so critical i mean especially for women who are perimenopause, menopause, you need to be lifting weights. Like there is there is just a research emerging that's kind of showing the relationship between, um, you know, bone, dis- bone density and, and lifting weights and obviously just your ability to kind of hold yourself up and not fall. I mean, you get a hip injury, you know, at 70 or you break your hip at 70. I mean, you're, you have a 30% chance of, increased chance of dying in the next year mm. like I, that is just like mind-blowing to me right it's like so blowing. preventing falls is so so important and a core in an absolute core piece of that is strength like you cannot get around it and so yeah i'm just really passionate about getting the ladies out there sprinting and lifting weights um 
So yeah, so we can we can uh, have a nice quality of life, play with the grandkids and stuff. <laughs> I want to get one tangible uh, piece of advice for people in the strain category. You mentioned the two heart zones that you found were the most important. Kind of define those for people and and so that they know what to shoot for. Maybe if they're using their own way of measuring it. Yeah, definitely. So you know, basically, zone five is I am out of breath. And and what's amazing about this is you don't have to do a ton of it. Four to six repetitions for thirty percent of your just max, um, you know, you know, ninety to one hundred percent. So you're really trying to go flat out. You can do this on a peloton, you know, on a bike. You can do it on a rower, um, run, swim. But you just really want to get your heart rate to its to its max. And again, just maybe once, twice a week, four to six reps. Um, you know, twenty to thirty seconds at your full sprint um, is really what we're after. Um, and then zone two, zone one is kind of where life happens. You know, that's where we're just, we're taking the doggy for a walk or, you know, we're, um, I, and I would argue, Julie, I totally agree when I'm cleaning the house, it can absolutely, you know, my heart rate can absolutely get to zone two for sure. And zone three even. So, um, so that, and you should get credit for that on the whoop. It's called just, um, manual labor. So that will come up sometimes when I'm like vacuuming and dusting, it'll be like manual labor or like shoveling. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, but zone two is is basically, you know, 40% of your your max heart rate. Um, and that's just like a really slow jog. And you want to do, um, you know, I think the, the you know, the non, I think the people who are really after longevity and quality of life, um, you know, health span will say, will prescribe about three hours of zone two per week, um, which is going to sound kind of like a lot to folks. Um, but But yeah, about three hours of zone two, a couple, you know, one to two sessions of zone five, and then, you know, sprinkle in some strength training. And that's really the kind of the ultimate prescription, I think, for, for health span. I love it. It's awesome. This, uh, this episode has been super helpful. I, I'd be remiss though, because I want, I want Julie to tell her COVID story. I think it's so great. So this was so serendipitous. Well, I don't know. I mean, it sucks. To get is COVID serendipitous? I don't know. It's, it's part <laughs> of life now and it's fine. And and it's and I love that it's sort of, at least in my mind, not become like a moral failing if you get it. And it never should have been, but it was sort of like, I think there's a lot of people that are like, I never got it. And I was like, you're a superhuman or something. Um, but I got it the first time back in March. I never got it. Which was, oh. uh, of course you did. I, Chris, I, no, I, actually, I haven't been sick since 2017. Oh, oh my gosh. February. Well, I, I got it. This is. This is, is number three for me. Yeah, there's there's oh, your there's your whoop ad right there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, what I'm telling you, I like I really practice what I preach. Like I feel like I have like the the I I I, I mean this is all I do is research in this space. So yeah, I mean I just have access to so much data, so I can see where yeah. people go wrong, and then I just yeah. don't do those things. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That is if you uh, if you get sick in the future, Kristen, it's not a failure. F one. No, I, I know, I know. I I do. I'm, I mean, I have two kids, so I mean, it's not like I'm not exposed. I mean, everyone in my house got COVID. I. Yeah, but yeah, I don't know. But anyway, Julie, go. No, you're fine. So yeah, I, I got it the first time, which was the worst, was before anybody had opportunities to be vaccinated back in March of 2020, and that sucked. And then I got it again after I went to Riot Fest in September. So like two years later, I was like, ah, I broke my street. Um, you know, all the old punks, we must have breathed on each other too much and whatever. But uh, and then I just got it this last, I'm just, I'm on like day 10 now. Um, I'm feeling a lot better, but it was crazy. So I, I woke up in the middle of the night because I was supposed to go to work the next morning. And I had this weird sore throat and I was like, eh, maybe I just talk too much because come on, I'm me. And uh, and then all of a sudden I woke up at like four in the morning, five in the morning and I was like, I don't feel well. I'm going to take a test. 
And as my Whoop data was downloading, I was taking the test and I looked at my Whoop data and I'll show you what it looked like. It was like basically being like, girl, what is wrong with you? <laughs> I, I know. Well, my temperature was up three degrees. My uh, resting heart rate was up. Uh, my heart rate variability was in the toilet. Uh, my respiratory rate was higher. My blood oxygen level was still okay. And so I looked at that as I was like getting my little pink line on my COVID test. And I was like, <gasps> and so it was, that was like, okay, confirmatory, which was funny. And then the day before it was like green, 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 like normal stuff. Um, all of my, my metrics, you know, and my, my, my five, you know, health monitor metrics. And then I was like over the weekend, I was feeling better. And, you know, like physically I was doing uh very, you know, minimal activity, doing a lot of sleeping and um, chilling and watching, watching shrinking. And then um, I was like slated to have myself go back to work on Tuesday. And then of course, like Monday night, getting some symptoms again, like feeling like I had a fever and I had more of a cough. So I was like getting that weird, like sometimes people see that bimodal response to COVID, which I had gotten actually the first time when I had it back in March of 2020. And I was like, shit, because I was supposed to see patients the next day. So, and then I looked at my data again, and it was all wonky again when I had had like three full days of greens and feeling good. So honestly, I mean, not to be a weirdo about this, and obviously I'm an N of one, but clearly I think, Kristen, you're going to give me some feedback here, is that like, and and I think that's probably why, you know, when I open my Whoop app in the morning and it asks me a couple questions, it's like, do you feel recovered today? And how, on what scale do you feel recovered? And then COVID questions. And I was like, why well, you ask me COVID questions? But I'm assuming that you guys are also collecting data about um, COVID diagnosis and COVID uh, recovery. And I will tell you that it has been very helpful for me to help me feel comfortable, not only just following the CDC guidelines of when I should be quarantining and then exiting quarantine, but when I should feel comfortable like doing stuff, you know, and that my body's ready to do stuff. So thank you. And that's my story. Yeah. Yeah. We have so many incredible examples, but yeah, I mean, we, we basically built a um, a machine learning algorithm um, that basically predicts 20% of cases before people are actually showing symptoms. Um, and 80% of all cases, uh, three days prior to exhibiting symptoms. So um, you'll see usually some meaningful respite changes in your respiratory rate, which we learned in our data um, from 2020, that that's kind of the canary in the gold mine. And we're within one breath of the gold standard on measuring respiratory rate. So for folks who might not know, so COVID-19 is a lower respiratory tract infection. And all of your metrics, so heart variability, heart rate, SpO2, you probably saw all of those move, Julie. Um, but because they're nonspecific, you can't necessarily point to like COVID. But respiratory rate, again, being a lower respiratory tract infection, COVID being a lower respiratory tract infection, your respiratory rate on WHOOP is going to deviate from your baseline. You know, at, sometimes, you know, what would be at subclinical levels, I think, in meaning that it, the common threshold for clinicians to worry about is probably around 20 breaths per minute. Mm -hmm. But for you, maybe you're, like, you wouldn't be 20 because yeah, maybe, it was like 18 when it was telling me it was weird. Right? Yeah. So that's considered subclinical, right? Um, mm -hmm. but, but relative to your own baseline, that's egregious, right? That's a standard deviation of four to five, right? So, yeah. um, yeah. So so basically you get that alert and you're like, oh, crap. OK, something's going on. Lower respiratory here that I need to worry about. And and I think, again, like when we consider utility. Right. Is this data useful? I mean, that's a great example of you isolating. Right. Not going and maybe infecting patients. Even maybe you don't feel that bad, but you're like, hmm, 
my data shows that something is not right here and I'm not going to take the chance of, you know, potentially, you know, infecting, you know, my, my loved ones or my patients or, you know, whoever you might be dealing with that day. So, yeah, we have, um, there's a great kind of a famous example with um, one of our PGA players, yes. Nick Watney. You probably yes. heard. I know this one, yeah. Everyone is ramping back up. You know, COVID was still in our orbit, but um, we we're trying to, you know, get back to kind of life. So the PGA opened up a tournament and Nick Watney got tested, uh, you know, professional golfer uh, before the this tournament started on Thursday. Everyone got mandatory testing on Tuesday. Um, the mandatory test showed that he was totally clear. Thursday morning, the day of the tournament, he woke up and his respiratory rate was through the roof. So he self-isolated, got tested again, and sure enough, he actually had COVID. So, um, so that, you know, and, and he ended up staying, you know, not able to yeah. participate in the tournament, but kind of saved the, the, this tournament. Um, and, um, uh, and that's how it was, you know, publicized anyway. Um, and as a result, we were, you know, we, we kind of have this contract now with the PGA where everyone has access to it and, and can wear it along with the caddies and the support staff. So it is definitely, um, you know, I think it proved to be an, awesome, uh, I think, opportunity for us as a company to, to really help people manage their health uh, more intentionally. But um, but I think of, you know, a kind of public, broader public service for sure, too. I agree. And I think that it's so funny. Some people that I brought up since I've been wearing the Whoop, they're like, I really love it. And it's given me such really helpful, objective feedback. And a lot of people have like, oh, my God, I could never wear that because I'm such a hypochondriac. I would just be freaking out all the time. And it's like, you'd think that because I am one. It just it just helps that I'm a physician and I have friends that are physicians that I could be like, oh, can you look at my thing and, and like make me feel yeah. better? But it's 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 basically helping me prove to myself that I'm resilient. And it also helps me with a, with it's 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 viewable biofeedback to let me know, OK, girl, you ain't crazy. You're sick. Yeah. Or like, you know, the reason that you feel like shit right now is because you slept like crap and you ate at midnight yeah. while watching shrinking and you uh, and you didn't do any yoga with Deshaun. So, yeah. you know, maybe maybe here's some actionable items that you can help to take charge of your health. And maybe someone who is a little bit of a worry wart like myself mm -hmm. would would thrive with 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 data like this. I mean, I think, Jeremy, it harkens back to our episode um, about midwifery. And we were talking about, you know, the the uh, continuous fetal monitoring didn't necessarily correlate with better maternal fetal outcomes. It correlated with more C-sections. And I, I think that this is the antithesis of that. It's like, hey, more data is more data and you are in charge of it. And the outcome can be what you want it to be. And if you don't want to know about it, then don't wear one. <laughs> but if you do want to know about it, here's an opportunity to purchase one if you can or want to. And even if you can't or don't want to, here's some really helpful tips about what we've learned from analyzing all this data for years. And then here's things that are that are clinically have good research behind them to say, if you do these things, you will actually get return on investment. So I think that this has been such a wonderful microcosm of, you don't, we don't have to put up more barriers for people to getting information about their health. Mm -hmm. And I love that. Yes. Yeah. Rant over. I don't know. Yeah, rant, rant over. Now, the data, data is really, data is is very, very helpful. It's very important. We're in an era where we have more data than we've ever had before. That happens in medicine or outside of medicine. You know, people get images like MRIs and, and all these tests all the time. But at the end of the day, we need to understand how to interpret data and how it really makes us healthier and make sure we're not getting too much data. So I, I think that that has been stuff we've talked on the show before. 
Chris, we've stolen a lot of your time. I want to borrow you for one more one more uh, uh, thing, if we could. Um, we're very careful about um, having brands and such on the show. The goal here is to inform on people, but obviously people who work in industry are doing amazing things. And so we do you know, more or less align with some brands. And so one of the things that I'm actually an ambassador for is athletic brewing. And I know that you guys did your little study uh, during dry January and you mentioned the the sleep and alcohol issues. And I'm just interested to know, do you guys have any data out of that to know like how it affected people? Yeah, well, I mean, we see alcohol. I, I actually don't know the results of, the, of that study. Um, have they yeah. been have they been pub- have we publicized those results yet? I, d- I don't know. And that's kind of why I phrased it the I way I did. I didn't want you to have to like publicize something you guys haven't publicized yeah exactly <laughs> i'm just not sure where we're at in the in in terms of the marketing engine around that but but yeah i mean the the broad stroke here is that um i mean alcohol is a poison right like there's no amount of ethanol that is good for you um so i think that that is um you know and, and i I get like some criticism, you know, kind of inside whoop, like you're shaming people. I'm like, no, no, I'm talking about the science. I'm not shaming anyone. Like, but I think we should tell, we, people should know that, Mm -hmm. you know, actually two glasses to like two drinks per week is going to have a negative impact on your health. Right. Like we know this, right. From the research, like this is the, it's very clear in the literature. So um, I think we owe it to the public in the same way that we would want to talk about the impact of poor sleep or the impact of under uh, fueling, the impact of overfueling. I mean, these are really important discussions, right? When we talk about, you know, there are kind of individual health and well-being, mental, physical, and emotional, there are just foundational behaviors that are going to upgrade our health or downgrade our health. And 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 clearly alcohol is one that is is going to downgrade your health and it doesn't mean you can't drink it doesn't mean that i'm never not going to drink like i'm going to have a prosecco every now and again but but i'm really really measured about when i do that because i understand its impact on on my health and certainly my ability to wake up and be present for my kids and my family mm-hmm. and be able to you know do everything that i want to do yeah. during the day like so um so i think it's important that you know we normalize it you know talking about alcohol and and putting the truth out there so um that's and and i love companies like athletic brewing you know people you know i know love the taste of beer and there's a social element to it and you know but do we have to drink to be social right and and i and i think you know as as someone who spends you know i I have a background in psychology and, and spend a lot of time in in that literature and and you know trying to understand you know the root cause and 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 I think if if we're having to drink alcohol, you know, to kind of be social, well, there's something else kind of going on that's worth addressing, right? And and I, yeah. So I, not to yeah. That's another podcast, of course. But but I, I agree. Think Actually, it was. We did have an episode with Dr. Gail Bosch, and so in fact, we've had her on twice. Well, the first oh, was talking about her. Her, yeah. you know, oh, she's amazing about so uh, drinking, and and the, I love it. it. Makes me think of you know when there was basically propaganda out there of like two glasses of wine a day you're fine you know and she's like you know what drink some grape juice and get on a treadmill you're gonna get this you know like that's your resveratrol and that's what you're you're actually getting recovery from so i agree you have Um, so much wine in order to get the the, uh, any positive like it would just be like or grapes like i yeah that is not the yeah 
Well, the WHO backs you up here because they just did put out those guidelines that said that no alcohol is safe. So that right. actually is that that's a new WHO guideline. So it's informed consent, right, Kristen? It's not. It, yeah. I agree with you. It's not. It's not shaming. It's just kind of like. I'm not going to stare at you while you have that glass of alcohol and think you're killing yourself. But at the same time, like we shouldn't just like tell people that it's not bad for you to do it. And you just need to do it in, I mean, it's to say she compared it a lot to like having, you know, cake. Like you don't sit there and stare at somebody having cake and like you're taking years off your life yeah. and that. Over yourself. And, I th- and I think just circle back to your original question. And the point of the podcast is, is wearable data making us healthier? I mean, we see individuals on our platform at, you know, kind of population statistics on our platform reduce alcohol consumption by 79%. Wow. 79%. And this is even that biofeedback. Yeah. Because they're getting it's like, here's the data. It's right in front of your face. You can't run away from it. And you know that like, and when I do this, this is the consequence. It, it, my numbers look like crap and I feel like crap. So, and I feel like crap. Yeah. And you know, and, and there's like a little bit of coaching, you know, like when you, when you, drink alcohol um you're diverting so many of your body's resources to just processing that alcohol as a result you you know any workout that you did that day for the most part you're not even going to be able to capitalize on it physiologically because your body is diverting all these resources to just processing and managing the poison that you put in your body right so it can't release human growth hormone in the way that it would normally right and obviously it's if you're drinking close to bed it's going to fragment your sleep so you're actually not getting into those deeper stages of sleep where you're where you're releasing human growth hormone. So, um, which is what you need to, to kind of build muscle and to capitalize on your your training. So it just, yeah, it kind of undoes a lot of the good stuff that you might be doing today. Um, that said, if you are going to drink, do as many good things during the day as you can to kind of offset yeah. um, the impact of, of the alcohol. You're very good at wrapping up podcasts. You must have been one on, on one before because you went back to the title and answered the question. Yes. And I think that we really appreciate that. So I think yeah, to the the question are, are wearables or fitness trackers making us healthier? I think the answer to that question would be is when the data is used appropriately, it has to, it, it definitely is. And so the things that I think we want to make sure that we're getting across or will be in our show notes is, you know, make sure that you, if you're going to wear one of these, that you understand how accurate the one you're wearing is. And there's the data that's been put out on that. In addition to that, which things you should care about. And we've talked about that in this episode. And then how you interpret those and and use them to make actual changes in your life, which whether you're wearing one of these or not, I think Kristen has put out a lot of tangible things people can be doing with or without a wearable. So I absolutely love yeah. that. Tell us a little bit more about where people can find out about you. Tell us, I mean, we talked about Whoop a lot, but let's talk about Whoop um, and, and put that out there for people. Yeah, so um, we have uh, we have our own podcast. Um, so I host a lot of those episodes. Um, Will Ahmed, our CEO, also hosts some episodes, but we talk about all the things that we kind of talked about today. Uh, we, you know, kind of dial in with with experts and have those conversations. So the Whoop podcast is uh, is awesome. And then um, we have a locker. Uh, it's called The Locker, where we do kind of blog-style posts about all sorts of things from, you know, hydration protocols to the effects of alcohol on your body to um, how to get into deeper stages of sleep to, you know, um, how to improve HRV. So lots of content around that uh, to kind of support the, the in-app experience. Um, and then... You know, I'm on LinkedIn. I, I post a ton about kind of circadian things and anything human optimization, um, physiological, psychological resilience. So I'm pretty active on on LinkedIn, and then I also um, uh, post a lot about on Instagram, just on training and um, different studies and research that we're doing, and just different nuggets of information 
Um, so just Kristen Holmes and should pop up 2126. It's <laughs> awesome. And one more thing I want to say before I let Julie close out the show, because she's our she's our outro uh, sign off. Uh, nice. Queen, queen. Um, the, the Whoop, if you go to their website, W-H-O-O-P, you'll learn more information about them. And then we were able to connect with them to give everybody an opportunity to try Whoop for a month free. So if you're interested, we will have the link that's in our show notes. We'll put it in our social, but it's basically to join and then your doctor friends. And so we'll, we'll have that in there. Julie, wrap us up. Um, all right. So, huh. Less is more? I don't know. More is more? Eh. How about rest is more? Let's focus on recovery and let's listen to your doctor friends. <laughs> the amazing music is credited to Skillcell with Pixabay licensure. The podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guest to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast.